Hi, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Stranova, a bi-weekly audio business program exploring the intersection of cutting-edge business strategy and the innovations that can ignite business growth. As an entrepreneur with over 30 years experience leading high-tech organizations, I've constantly sought out new ideas that could take business to an entirely new level of performance. For Stranova, I've invited some of the most innovative business leaders out there and asked them to share their ideas with you. So sit back, listen, and consider what some of these new thoughts might mean to your business as we begin this week's episode of Stranova. I'd like to begin this week's episode of Stranova by asking some questions. Do you have or do you know someone who has far more frequent flyer miles than they can take advantage of in the next year? Do you know someone who works for a university or other institution where there are complimentary educational benefits provided just by being an employee of that institution and that person isn't taking perhaps any advantage of the program? And for those with medical insurance, are you significantly underutilizing the benefits you've paid for? And have you ever wondered if there were some way you could trade or transfer these unused benefits to others in some legal manner so that others could make use of them and perhaps you could receive something in exchange that was of more value to you right now? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then you will absolutely want to keep listening to the innovative concepts our guest Joel Hodruff will tell you about in just a few minutes. Through his company, Dual Currency Systems, He's created a concept called Universal Reward Solutions, where many of these so-called non-cash currencies, including hotel reward points, frequent flyer miles, unused health care benefits, and excess free tuition allowances, and others, might be freely traded and transferred back and forth between each other in a sort of Universal Rewards Exchange Bank, and even be combined with cash to allow use of these previously unusable rewards in consumer and business-to-business exchanges we might previously never have been able to pull off. I can see some of you out there nodding and smiling, but there's also a significant number of you out there who have a couple of important questions about this. Among the biggest, perhaps, is that, although this certainly sounds like a good deal for the consumer, higher utilization of these types of benefits would add to the cost for the benefit providers and ultimately mean either that the benefit providers would run into problems fulfilling all the increased needs or would never join the program in the first place. Good questions, those. You're going to get a chance to hear the inventor of this concept answer them in the interview in just a few moments. But suffice to say that, as in all things that people say just aren't possible, it's in part because we aren't thinking of this as a whole system. Many of these benefits, or as I refer to them sometimes in this interview, non-cash currencies, are, first of all, utilized far less than even the original benefit providers had intended, and they really do want them to be used more fully. Among other things, consumers who know they will be able to utilize benefits like these more fully are more likely to want to sign up with the companies who are part of this program, thereby increasing market share for partner businesses and increasing the economies of scale for their own internal operations. There's much more to go over, and the one to tell it is, of course, the founder of this concept, Mr. Joel Hudruff. He brings an extensive experience in financial innovation, drawn both from his entrepreneurial background creating and later selling Solar Consultants, Inc., a solar home heating company in New Mexico, and for many years as a corporate barter broker in the commercial barter industry. 
As a measure of how the world perceives the value of his inventions, Mr. Hudruff has already been granted key patents in the creative new venture of dual currency commerce and was recently named a 2005 Entrepreneur of the Year by Minnesota's Finance and Commerce magazine. We are very pleased to have Mr. Hudruff as our guest this week. We spoke to him at his offices in Stillwater, Minnesota. Joel, welcome to Sternova. Thank you, Brad. I'm excited to have this interview. As I covered briefly in my introduction, in our modern economy, we seem to be creating many different types of currency to trade in. And one of the barriers in using these currencies is that they are often restricted in use to a specific market and perhaps even only a single consumer and a narrowly restricted set of vendors, such as in the case of frequent flyer miles, where you basically have the flyer who has only a few seats they can go for, and it's on a narrowly restricted set of airlines. Now, how does your company, Dual Currency, change that paradigm for the consumer? You're right that, in general, the model is that people earn from one particular retailer or merchant. In airlines, you get frequent flyer miles, a coffee shop, you get points to redeem a cup of coffee. And what we noticed is between all these rewards for consumer spending and the cash that people have to spend, there's still an enormous amount of excess capacity at merchants, empty restaurant tables, empty airline seats, empty college desks, off hours at the movies and the YMCA. So what we figured out how to do through a proprietary contract with the merchants, in other words, a standard contract that everybody can participate through, is find a way that any merchant can take any reward through any credit card, and that's why we call it Universal Reward Solutions. So, obviously, part of the challenge you have is to encourage these people, providing at least what I had referred to briefly as non-cash currencies, into your own business cycle. We talk a lot about money flow. You're basically bringing something that typically flows in a very narrow circuit into a much larger flow cycle. How do you engage in bringing those providers into that cycle? What's the benefit to them, and, and why should they be interested in this? For starters, it's a big win-win for all the stakeholders. You can see today that, again, using frequent flyer miles as an example, but maybe we'll get to talk about some other non-cash currencies like barter dollars or time dollars or local currencies. Today you see that there's 10 trillion frequent flyer miles piled up in consumer accounts. So it's apparently been very easy to earn miles and very hard to spend them because you know that most of the airlines are not highly profitable today. And so they've restricted the available seats for frequent flyer mile redemption to about 3%. Well, one of the opportunities for everybody is to find more places to spend these frequent flyer miles. It's a win for the airlines because it gets liabilities off their books. A win for consumers, they get to spend miles that have just been sitting in their accounts. A win for merchants who become a destination for frequent flyer mile spending. They take a certain percentage. Instead of spending it on advertising, we just drive business to them through the network because they're a destination for miles. And it's a huge win for credit card companies because, face it, Brad, everybody's tired of the same old offers, zero balance transfers, no payments till 2008, bigger rewards, low interest rates when you open an account. 
there aren't very many exciting offers today out in the credit card world, and we think Universal Reward Solutions is a very exciting new offer. So all the stakeholders win. Well, you mentioned also wanting to talk a little bit about some of the other types of barter currencies that you are are dealing with. Could you talk a little bit about how some of those other ones work? In fact, some of those may be even more challenging to understand for some of us. Sure. Well, part of the source of this innovation is that I have a background in commercial barter where a, a huge amount of commerce goes on without dollars. So hotels trade for airline seats for their executives and airline executives stay on barter in hotels. Both airlines and hotels trade for fleets of cars and auto executives pick up on barter their hotel stays and their airline seats. Now that type of B2B barter is enormous including the media trading and the billions of dollars. There's also individual to individual or C to C barter. Watch the kids, I'll give you vegetables from my garden. So far, no one's been able to conceive of a modern B2C barter where merchants can move some of this excess capacity in exchange for things that they need because it would be impractical to go down to the Home Depot with a basket of vegetables trying to pick up a saw. But what Dual Currency Systems has done, and people can check out how this works on our website, www.dualcurrency.com, We've monetized both sides of the transaction so that people are earning in non-cash rewards. Businesses can take a combination of cash and non-cash rewards. And it turns out to be uh, metaphorically a form of B2C barter where commerce can expand when traditional financial resources have been insufficient or unavailable. So have you been able to actually get a number of people pulled in so far on this then? We did a pilot program in the late 90s that included Hennepin County, Mall of America, the biggest mall in the country, National City Bank as our banking partner, and it turned out that because we were focused on volunteer service credits as the non-cash financial instrument, it wasn't taken seriously by the business community, which is how we worked our way back to what feels to most people like a more commercial proposition, redeem your frequent flyer miles or other loyalty rewards like American Express membership rewards through your credit cards at participating merchants. So we're actually ramping up a new demonstration of a more commercial dual currency application. As well, we're in conversations with healthcare providers on a model called Health Bucks, which is all about incentives for wellness activities that lower everyone's cost of healthcare, like quitting smoking, dropping weight, exercising more, improving your diet. So you can see that one of the things we're working on is rewards for more than consumer spending that create a more level playing field and address challenges like the affordability of health care in this country. The last thing you talked about, too, provides something that the health care providers have been struggling to find a way to incentivize, and you actually have something that will be directly linked into the way they do their business that will actually help them, and they really don't have an easy way of doing that otherwise. That's our intention. If you look out into the workforce today, rising health care costs are a challenge for everybody. Employers are investing in wellness programs where they're finding that a dollar invested in wellness can save up to three dollars in health care costs down the road. Well, we found a new source 
of backing rewards because traditionally they're just cash backed and through this proprietary merchant contract for dual currency pricing, part cash, part rewards, we're actually backing the health bucks with empty restaurant tables, empty airline seats, empty college desks, excess retail, merchandise everywhere, off-season travel. There's an enormous amount of wealth that nobody can tap into for lack of cash financial resources. So we've got sort of a cross between bartering and what's called corporate script, like frequent flyer miles, money backed by a business's capacity to offer its products or services. Well, and effectively, if I think of it in a broader set of economic terms, one of the potentials that you will be doing is freeing up savings accounts where the money is just sitting there. It's actually going to start to flow into the economy again. Let me ask a question that also flows from this. I guess flow is a good word for this. That one of the challenges you know, I wondered about in looking at your business model is that for many of these non-cash currencies or, or alternative currencies, their whole concept in and of themselves as an independent system depends on customers actually using far less of the currency than they're entitled to. You know, and as an example, I have actually from personal knowledge of people that have dealt with this, if one consumer who works for a university is entitled to free tuition for him or her, the reality is that most people with such a benefit probably don't use it. And further, the university's own business model in giving such a benefit depends on the employees not using the benefits to a full extent. So a question I would have is, doesn't the increased usage of some of these non-cash benefits actually end up stressing the financial models that allowed giving out some of them in the first place? You know, you're making a very good point, Brad, and this is where people have to put their new paradigm lens on and think about the inefficiency of the market when we have huge grounded airline flights, big planes grounded, when people would like to be flying more. We have lots of empty college desks when society is screaming out for a better educated workforce. We have off hours at health clubs, private clubs, the YMCA, community-owned clubs, in other words, public, private, and nonprofit clubs have lots of excess capacity when we need a healthier population. So you're right. If all we can think of is the downward pressure on budgets and profits everywhere, as opposed to the growing availability of wealth from ever more airlines or restaurants or malls or department stores. In other words, there's a tension between the proliferation of duplication in the economy, more and more places to buy, and smaller and smaller market share for each of them. Downward pressure on market share, downward pressure on profits, downward pressure on wages. And the other side of it, the growth of excess or underutilized capacity on campuses, for airlines, even banks. Everywhere you go, someone is starting a bank, and these bank lobbies are empty all day long, every day, except for a couple of rush hours twice a month at payroll time. So the point is, how can we have so much capacity side by side with so much unmet need? And that's where we began to realize a second financial instrument that can stretch cash, not replace cash, but stretch cash is a burning necessity to go to the next level of improving our standard of living and quality of life. So to put this another way, all through history, 
Money has evolved. We've gone from barter to gold coins, gold coins to paper currency and checks, paper currency and checks to electronic banking, credit cards, and now e-commerce. And every time it's because our ability to produce and distribute goods and services has outstretched money's ability to support that. So we're looking at a next generation of currency or money that can expand commerce when everywhere you look, businesses want to sell more of the very things people want to buy and all that's missing is dollars or cash purchasing power. Building a bit on what you're talking about, about the excess capacity, I would guess that in each of these markets there's an excess that allows for a little bit of growth with no stress. An example would be a classroom that can easily accommodate two to three more students and it really doesn't necessarily stress the professors that are involved in a healthcare area possible to treat a few more patients without throwing it out the window and so on throughout these things. And there's also the airlines where a plane with empty seats is a plane wasting an opportunity. It's kind of like hotel rooms as well, that if they go empty overnight, the value of that asset is forever gone. So you actually do have probably quite a bit of excess capacities based on what you're saying and that Part of the secret to this is that there is actually room to grow without stressing things all that much. Brad, it's actually more dramatic than that. The figure in the airlines is 13% empty seats, but that doesn't take into consideration all the large grounded planes because the competition has driven the airlines to ever smaller planes and ever more short flights to try to service the available cash customers. But there's a lot of people who, if they could stretch a modest amount of cash with rewards, they could easily fly and the airlines could be making incremental sales and significant incremental profits because there's no additional build-out of infrastructure. The plane's already paid for. It's a modest amount of gas and there isn't even a bag lunch associated with it anymore. Again, think about college classrooms, yeah, on the one hand, you could put three, four, five, ten students into the existing class, but what if we could hire a few more teachers and teach a much bigger part of the population because we've got enormous capacity on campus after campus. So we're confusing the available wealth to drive us to a current level of production with the available productive capacity, which is far, far larger. One of the conclusions that I'm drawing from what you've said is that there is the potential that by putting this kind of concept in place in a big way that we actually could end up stimulating job growth, stimulating various industries in ways that they haven't been able to see simply because there's been no way to even get people into those economies. Brad, you're hitting the nail on the head, and I want to explain, too, what is sustainable about this model. So first, let me back up and say what isn't working is that every single factor of production is moving in the right direction. We have an information economy that takes ever less raw materials, less energy, less labor, and less capital to produce goods and services. We have ever-improved labor skill, ever-improved management skill, ever-improved technology, ever-improved infrastructure. So why is the standard of living and quality of life for individuals, families, and communities going up and down, up and down when every factor of production is moving in the right direction? Well, the answer is that we're not using money properly and it's competition over scarce financial resources in the face of ever-improving 
productive capabilities that's causing this tension or this up and down business cycle for individuals, families, and communities. Now, what we figured out with dual currency commerce is instead of competitively simply starting one more of every kind of business to promote economic growth, one more airline, one more bank, one more club, ten more coffee shops, five more bagel shops, what it's possible to do is inside of a coalition of participating merchants drive extra traffic to their off hours or to their excess capacity using a combination of cash and a new non-cash financial instrument. So instead of the grower die mentality, the way business is operating today, a little bit more cooperation to capture and distribute currently excess capacity or wasted wealth is a win for consumers, a win for employees. This model allows for improved employee benefits without raising cash labor costs. That's a paradigm shift. So we argue that there's the possibility of better utilization, greater market efficiencies stretching cash with a non-cash financial instrument and therefore frequent flyer miles or loyalty rewards are just a metaphor for this dual currency process that we talk about. But it's far more sustainable than simply starting more and more businesses to watch them ultimately fail. In order for this to work, you've indicated in some of the presentations you've given and even in our pre-interview that one of the things that you would be doing is effectively creating what sounds like a trading bank of sorts or a trading monitoring committee where the appropriate stakeholders of all groups would actually meet to determine things like the effective trading rate of each non-cash currency and even agree on how much of any given currency is available for barter. How would that work in practice and how have your experiences gone when these teams have met and how well they can actually agree on the ebb and flow of these various resources? This is an exciting subject, Brad, and we're actually still recruiting the pioneers to help with the design and build out of this. I'll give you two exciting metaphors for how systems like this are run simply by design principles. It's not a lot of meetings and a lot of give and take and debate. Once the design principles are refined, notice how the internet operates without a management team and without elections, a set of design principles was set up at the beginning and it's totally self-managing. Similarly, Visa, and there's a great link on our website to an essay by the founder of Visa, D. Hawk, a visionary who said, hey, there's excess competition in the banking and credit card industry. That's why credit cards are failing because every single bank has launched its own competing credit card. What happened then was in the 60s, under the leadership of Bank of America, the banking industry came together and agreed on a common platform that was also run by design principles. So there's a minimum of management, a minimum of haggling, and the competing banks agreed to cooperate on the Visa platform and to compete over their separate portfolios of customers. So again, a balance of competition and cooperation producing a much better result. Well, that actually leads to another question I had. I see that if this proceeds on a widespread scale, there are really two consequences I think you'd have to deal with, and I'm wondering how you might plan to deal with them. The first is that the taxing agencies, such as the IRS, would tend to get very interested in these increasingly large non-cash assets that are being traded and might want to tax the transactions. 
The second is that the growing tide of non-cash trades would effectively become a major underground economic influence that in itself would affect supply, demand, and perhaps even real currency value in certain markets. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your thoughts on these issues? We've used the metaphor of barter, but it's really only a metaphor. In the current situation, barter is a taxable transaction and you have to pay your taxes in cash. But this differs from barter, Brad, because a barter currency circulates. A merchant takes it in and a merchant looks for a place to spend it. The corporate script model, like frequent flyer miles, is quite different. Frequent flyer miles are issued, redeemed, and taken off the books. So they're not a barter instrument. They don't circulate from person to person. And so the IRS isn't making many rulings anymore. The frequent flyer mile or, or loyalty rewards ruling came out as a press announcement. But frequent flyer miles are not considered taxable at the moment. Employee benefits like free flights if you work at the airlines, uh, free or discount tuition if you work at the university, free or discount meals in a restaurant are also not a taxable transaction. Let me take a second to talk about the issue of supply and demand. In our current dollar model, plenty of goods and services without purchasing power in the hands of consumers just sits there and doesn't turn into supply. Plenty of unmet needs throughout society without purchasing power in the hands of consumers doesn't end up as demand. So supply and demand is basically a formula for setting cash prices. But without enough cash, merchants have lots of goods they want to sell, people have lots of unmet needs, and it just sits there. Merchants don't get all the customers they want, and people don't get all the goods and services they want. So now think about the possibility that when you issue a second currency, let's call the generic version of this business dollars, because it's a business-issued script. If you issue it in relationship to available products and services, so it's issued with production and it's taken off the books with consumption, that keeps production and consumption absolutely in line with one another, which would mean that you don't have too much money chasing too few goods and services causing inflation or too little money in the face of plenty of goods and services causing recession, you actually have a tool for creating a proper balance between available goods and services and the needs on the consumer side. Now, I've got an economics white paper on the dual currency website, again, www.dualcurrency.com for people who want to go deeper into this, Brad. But you'd think in this day and age, we'd be able to do a better job of matching available business capacity with unmet needs throughout the community. Also, work that needs to be done in communities and available labor throughout the community. And yet, dollars alone have been somewhat inefficient at doing that. Again, back to the barter metaphor, if you've got businesses wanting to sell more and people who want the stuff, if you have work that needs to be done in communities, senior care, child care, better housing, environmental cleanup, and no budgets to do it with, those look like big barter opportunities where more goods and services can flow in exchange for the work people do. Businesses are satisfied because they can sell more. People get more products and services that they want and need. So we think we have some big picture solutions to problems that so far economists have been unable to address. And maybe just the couple minutes we have remaining here, I'd like to have you have the opportunity to tell us a little bit about your background that this made it possible for you to form this kind of 
innovative company and the vision for what it might offer? Uh, thanks, Brad. That's kind of fun to share. I grew up in a family that owned a Jewish mortuary, and growing up in that family was all about the combination of business and community service. And interestingly, it was a little bit like being a preacher's kid. And so besides it being interested in business community and community service, I had to be very well behaved or it was a poor reflection on the family. And so I learned to be very straight about my outside-the-box solution. So instead of dropping out and forming a hippie commune or a food co-op or something like that, I kept asking, well, how do these innovations apply to mainstream business. And another important factor was my background in the barter industry. I also worked in the solar heating products industry. So I was bartering solar systems for advertising and office furniture and employee benefits. And I just began to get the hang of non-cash transactions. And then finally, an extremely influential part of my own thinking and evolution. I had a daughter in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. I got into her family aftercare program, which was a 12-step program. And I suddenly realized with my background and my eye out for non-cash transactions that many people were paying cash to treat alcoholism or drug addiction in a public, private, or nonprofit hospital or clinic, while others were sitting in a church basement going, hi, my name is Bob. The recovery was just as good. The recidivism or return to addiction was just as low. And I noticed, wow, not only is no cash changing hands, there's no doctors with credentials, there's no medications, there's no technologies, there's no big buildings. And I began to notice an entire non-cash economy where people were producing and distributing needed goods and services. So now I knew about 12 steps. I knew about barter. I knew about frequent flyer miles. I was watching the growth of open source or shareware on the internet where people could spend cash for software development or others would volunteer and produce Unix every bit as powerful as Linux. I noticed volunteerism, Brad, where you had paid fire departments and volunteer fire departments. They both put out fires. You had paid delivery and books on wheels delivery. They both got things delivered. Family economics, paid cooking, cleaning, shopping, laundry, and chauffeuring. Moms cooking, cleaning, shopping, laundry, and chauffeuring. Pretty soon, I began to envision a currency exchange between the cash and the non-cash economies where more goods and services might flow to the non-cash economy where people were working hard but often not well compensated and more of the values like cooperation, community, spirituality, self-help, mutual aid might flow from the non-cash economy into the cash economy. So, you know, we've covered a lot of subjects in a hurry. I want people to feel free to email me at dualcurrency.com, that's D-U-A-L-C-U-R-R-E-N-C-Y.com, so that I can send out an introductory packet. At the bottom of our homepage, dualcurrency.com, there are some simple introductory PowerPoint presentations. How does this apply to loyalty rewards? How does this health bucks model apply to lowering cost in health care and improving wellness? Well, Joel, thank you very much for all that. I would encourage all of our listeners, regardless of what their connection is to this, to feel free to contact Joel and check out the website. I would imagine that all 
potential stakeholders to this opportunity would be very welcome. Joel, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Stranova. Brad, thank you. I enjoy your programs, and I would love to hear from your audience and interact with them a bit. Thanks for your time today. When you think of strategic innovations of the past decades, my guess is most of you will think of things like the iPod digital music player that you may be listening to this on right now, the amazing developments the Internet has brought to us, and recent breakthroughs in medical science. In that context, things that involve money in all its forms may seem very different and far less dramatic in their strategic importance. I personally think the reason for that is less than that they aren't dramatic, and far more that we haven't really seen dramatic financial innovations for quite some time. And those that we have experienced in the last century have simply become things we assumed were always part of the financial landscape. Imagine the genius of the whole concept of the credit card, and even more incredibly, the alliance of banks that Visa, a once just as new company as dual currency systems is now, put together, and with it initiated a sea change in the way we all live, work, and play. And then there's the traveler's check, which many of us acquire before traveling extensively, and which protects us by knowing it can be replaced virtually overnight if it's ever lost or stolen, and which we not only pay a service charge to acquire, often, but also have probably forgotten that having purchased it and not having used it amounts to a free loan to the issuer of the traveler's check. So if you're wondering whether financial innovation isn't that big a deal these days, please just think back on what your life would be like now if those last two concepts weren't part of your current world. I'm personally looking forward to a future where what Mr. Haldreff has envisioned is not only commonplace, but so ordinary that we consider using his services as mundane as carrying that traveler's check or paying for dinner with your credit card. In addition, just as the amount of money in your pocket isn't as important to economic growth as the rate of flow of that money through the economic system, when Mr. Hodorov's inventions become pervasive in our world, so also the increased flow of these non-cash currencies will benefit all participants in this new non-cash financial system in ways we can only now just imagine. That's my reflection for this week, and thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about any of the topics in this week's show, please visit our website at www.stranova.com. And be sure to look at the current programs and resources pages for some interesting insights on our speakers and recommended links to related reference materials. If you have any comments on our show or suggestions for people to invite for future shows, please do contact us at ideas at stranova.com or leave us a short voice message on our Stranova comment line at area code 408 849-4394, or via Skype by a click from our homepage. This recording is copyright 2006 by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson, thanking you for listening and looking forward to talking with you next time on Stranova.